today's episode is brought to you by State Bags. State Bags makes beautiful products while also using the power of business to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State Hand delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you are traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com using the code POD. That's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD. P-O-D at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry. Today on the podcast, I have my very good friend and former co-host of Mom Ears Only 91.1 WBOR uh, radio show, Noah Robert Nelson is here. Thank you for having me. That's the uh, the greatest radio show that no one listened to. People listened. I don't think that's true. I mean... Noah has a long relationship with athletics that I don't have. Yeah, so I played sports my entire life, um, was able to play in college, and then now work for a professional sports team. So it's uh, I am in and around sports every day, um, and you could say that I am passionate about it. So yes. So today we're going to be talking about activism in sports and why people react the way they do to that. Do you want to tell me a little bit about like the recent things that have been happening? Sure. All sports were on a hiatus due to the pandemic. The NFL, NBA, MLS, and NHL were all in the middle of their seasons or had okay. begun. So they were all in season when the pandemic first really started causing disruption in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so after the murder of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, that's kind of where leagues really were actually trying to get things back underway. And there was a lot of pushback mm-hmm. players saying there are a lot more important things that are going on right now in sports. And so particularly right. in, in the NBA, uh, where you see the most representation of af- not only athletes of color, but as athletes that are incredibly outspoken, mm. that's the league that I would say really took um, the biggest stance uh, in terms of being outspoken politically encouraging people to vote and remembering the names of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, all victims of police brutality. The WNBA just had their season. Seattle just won. Sue Bird, who's like the second coolest athlete in the world, if not the coolest, only behind Megan Rapinoe, who she's dating. They were just crown champions. They Mm -hmm. dedicated their entire season to remembering Breonna Taylor. Similar to what the NBA did in having you know, phrases in the back of the jerseys, WNBA had Breonna Taylor's name on their jerseys. And mm-hmm. a lot, most, if not all press conferences after games, you know, questions would be asked, oh, what'd you think about the game? You know, oh, you came down to the stretch and hit that big shot. What was going through your head? And a lot of the responses have been, yeah, it doesn't really matter, but um, just want to make sure that everyone's paying attention to what's happening in the world and 
yeah. remember Breonna Taylor and fight for justice. And that's been the message throughout the entire season. And I think wow. that it's been really powerful too with like the male female dynamic of basketball mm-hmm. because the NBA, a lot of NBA players and coaches have been wearing the WNBA sweatshirt. There are a couple images of like Chris Paul, who's actually the president uh, from the player side of the National Basketball Players Association. And he's also a, a point guard for the Thunder. There's been so many players and coaches and male athletes across the board throughout a lot of different sports that have been promoting the WNBA. And Mm -hmm. it's really crucial to see that happen, not only for the WNBA as a sport, but also in terms of activism and bringing about change. It's been really cool to see. I was reading something in some publication called The Conversation, where they wrote about um, the Milwaukee Bucks refusing to play after Jacob Blake was shot. And that was in August. So they said, the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court in protest over the police shooting of a black man in Wisconsin, Jacob Blake, who at the time was paralyzed in the hospital. The WNBA actually also stopped play and recognized Blake in a different way. So mm. instead of playing the game that was supposed to happen, those players that were supposed to be playing that game knelt and had Jacob Blake's name displayed across their chest using that time that would be dedicated to sport to speak about what's happening in the world. This is really interesting. The players boycott immediately threatened the viability of the NBA's playoffs, endangering underlined the most lucrative part of the season for the league. The players were also risking millions of their own dollars to raise their voices against racism in America. And in the Bucks statement, they said, We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. We encourage all citizens to educate themselves, take peaceful and responsible action, and remember to vote on November 3rd. I know we had talked about doing this just because we're both interested in it, but I was thinking about this. I listened to this podcast the other day called You're Wrong About, where they like go back to historical events and correct like common misconceptions about them. And they had an episode on after school specials, which was this TV program that started in the 70s and ran, I think, right up until we were born, like 97. And one of the arguments they made about the difference between television back then and television now is that people are much less receptive to overt moral demonstrations or like any kind of TV program that is trying to teach you something or tell you how to live. And one of the reasons they say this is because people aren't as trusting of TV now and I guess social media now to tell us the truth. And people also increasingly want to feel entertained and not necessarily educated. But the other thing about after-school specials is that they mimic supposed real-life situations, but were actually just like fictional scenarios. And in the case of what we're talking about today, like activism and moral messaging in sports, it's real people who we see on real platforms and who in many cases are risking derision, rejection, and exclusion, and sometimes even violence from the sport that they play in order to send this message to the American people. As I said, today we're talking about activism in athletics and the seemingly political demonstrations and how they affect the psyche of those who consume America's favorite pastimes. I'm saying seemingly political because calling it political protest implies that we're bringing a foreign element, politics, into an apolitical sphere like sports when that has never really been the case. And what's Interesting about this is like there is a lot of historical precedent for protest in sports. Like 
the earliest one that I could find was in literally 532 AD, mm-hmm. um, which was during the chariot races in Constantinople. Um, these two drivers from rival teams stopped and asked the emperor to pardon two of their followers who had been condemned to execution. And they did this in the middle of the race. And the emperor refused. And that sparked a huge revolt in like the city of Constantinople. Six weeks of rioting, 30,000 deaths. Really heightened ritual performances are like perfect kindling for the protest bonfire. Mm-hmm. And I think they always have been. It's almost impossible, but somehow people still try really hard to deny the connection. Like in 72 at the Munich Games, nine members of the Israeli national team, I think mostly track and field and some weightlifters, were kidnapped and held hostage and eventually murdered, unfortunately, or they died um, by eight members of the militant organization Black September, which was advocating for Palestinian independence. I, I watched a documentary about this. The most upsetting thing, honestly, wasn't even the recap of what had happened, but watching footage at the time of Olympic officials and the mayor of the Olympic village being like, well, they would have wanted us to keep going. And like forcing these like, torch ceremonies and like games being played and people competing meanwhile like there are frantic negotiations because black september wanted israel to release 234 palestinian prisoners golda meir i think was the prime minister of israel then and she was like oh no so like it was just this whole tense thing but the determination to divorce it from the activity that was happening at the time while the reason that the this militant group picked the Olympics is because it's so magnified and like because it was going to get such good coverage. It's just like, how are you not seeing, like how can you deny that that's exactly what's going on? A lot of people look at sports or viewing sports as an escape. It's an escape because it is often vastly different than their day-to-day reality. Right. And I think that a lot of people look at that as uh, a safe space. Sports is a safe space. Mm -hmm. Any political or controversial topic there have throughout as long as i can remember been ties between political activism social activism and you know monumental figures in sports yeah like i feel like the first one to me that comes to mind is like muhammad ali when he refused to fight in vietnam or like during the 1968 olympics tommy smith and john carlos on the podium for the awards raised their fist in the black power symbol the cleveland browns receiver this is in 2014 which is also the year that lebron james wore that shirt um andrew hawkins wore a shirt during warm-ups that said justice for tamir rice and john crawford the third and um the head of the police union in cleveland decided to release a statement about this saying quote It's pretty pathetic when athletes think they know the law. They should stick to what they know best on the field. The Cleveland police protect and serve the Browns stadium and the Browns organization owes us an apology. And from what I know, the Browns basically collectively wrote back like, no, we don't owe you one. What you were talking to relates to uh, what Colin Kaepernick did in 2016. In the start of the 2016 NFL season, Kaepernick uh, was first spotted by reporters sitting on the bench during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. This was during a preseason game. After the game, he said, 
I'm not going to stand up and show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. He actually had a conversation with uh, Nate Boyer, who was a former Seahawks player and a member of the military, uh, talking mm-hmm. about the most respectful way that he could protest. And so that sitting turned into kneeling. Um, because, oh, okay. So Boyer said that soldiers take a knee in front of a fallen brother's grave uh, to show respect. And so that's kind of where that kneeling movement came from. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and so Kaepernick and then also his teammate Eric Reed were incredibly outspoken throughout the remainder of that season. After that, a lot of people were up in arms that he was disrespecting the flag and disrespecting right. our nation. When in reality, he was demonstrating peacefully and in the most respectful way possible. But there is the sense of nationalism that is associated with a piece of cloth that a lot of people take heavy offense to whenever it is not respected or demonstrated in the same way that they would necessarily do it. So unless you put your hand over your heart and stand and remove your cap for the national anthem, you you are disrespecting all people who love America. I think people feel threat, their understanding of America, which is like, for some people tied into sports and like tied into the flag and these like displays of nationalism that don't really mean anything in themselves, that feels threatened. And I feel like that's why there's such a strong response. What happened to Kaepernick? Was he fired or something? Oh, Kaepernick um, essentially has been, for lack of a better term, blackballed from the NFL. Only a couple months ago, the NFL tried to create this tryout for him, but it oh. was, feel, felt more like a media stunt than anything else. It was only like a week's notice before the tryout itself, so it put front office members and scouting staff for a lot of teams in a tough position because maybe they had other obligations they had to go to at that time. Right. And oh, so it almost felt more like a, oh, look, we gave you a chance. Right. As opposed to a here's a legitimate opportunity for you to sign with an NFL team. Donald Trump's response to Kaepernick was that he, quote, maybe shouldn't be in the country, which is like exactly what we're talking about. Like it just, if you don't fit into the story that we're saying is your experience and we're broadcasting for everyone else to enjoy as your life, then like you're just fully out. This is something that you and I have talked a lot about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sporting events play heavily into a sense of nationalism that a lot of people feel in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, Before pretty much every professional sporting event up until this year in the United States, the U.S. national anthem is played. Fans and players and coaches, everyone in the stadium stands up and salutes this flag that we have since our childhood been ingrained to believe is this greater power that is representative of everything that is amazing with America, right? So it's funny because as you and I learned a lot about this in a prior class, something that really stood out to me was the Pledge of Allegiance. And Mm -hmm. I went to a a school that we didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance uh, initially when I was in and early middle school. And then when I came to um, the school that I would spend the rest of my adolescence at, we started playing it. And so when I, it was an interesting transition from me going and having never heard the Pledge of Allegiance, I, I sort of sat there and I still remember it to this day because it was such a 
unique experience for me, having everyone else know the words to this pledge that I had never heard of. One of the primary strategies of the nation state construction is to have an in-group and an out-group. Like, what's this thing that we all do together that we know that's like a special thing that's just us? And if you don't know it, you're not part of us. Oh, Kaepernick's disrespecting the flag. And this flag has this almost spiritual relationship to people in how they view America and the country that they grew up in and how we were told since we were young that America is the greatest country in the world. Right. Which is why, on the flip side, it is the best platform on which to raise issues that you think are important. Maybe we should break it down a little bit because we both took the class. So, like, we know the idea of the nation, what the nation state is and, like, how it's formed and stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Let's talk about it. Um, so, I believe this was our sophomore year. Wrong. Already wrong. Already bad. I believe it was the start of our junior year that we had this class. <laughs> uh, yes. It was called The Myth of the Nation State. And it was with the greatest professor in the world. Uh, oh, so good. And I had no idea what we were getting into. I don't know if you did. <laughs> I didn't even understand what a nation state was. Like, Yeah, no. Um, I just heard that it was a great professor and you were taking the class. So I was like, all right, let's do this. Um, and so my mind was blown. And we talked about this yeah. on our radio show a lot. Mm-hmm. The idea of nationality and a unified nation state identity and like the yeah. pairing between, you know, being insiders and outsiders and really just these, not necessarily imaginary because, imaginary because they are physical lines that are drawn, but arbitrary lines that are drawn in the sand. Completely. Someone's nationhood um, and the right. nationalism that they sh- should feel, right? Like if mm-hmm. I'm born in, for example, I'm from Maine. So if I am born in Presque Isle or Caribou, right, I am only a couple miles from the Canadian border. Um, right. I may see more Canadians than I do Americans, but because I was born just inside the lines of the United States, I am brought up to believe that the United States is a part of my identity. So there's a nation and then like the state and in the term nation state, it's like the idea that the state basically constructs this like obscure understanding of just like joint connection and like agreement to just go with whatever the state is saying. And it's just this acceptance of reality that's like completely manufactured and like extreme commitment to it to the point of death. Like that's, that's theoretically, I think, the idea of the nation state is like the ability to really effectively exert influence and power over a random group of people by convincing them that they have something really important in common with each other and then never actually having anyone figure out who you are by just like keeping power really diffuse and like obscure and inaccessible. It's really hard initially to grasp i just yeah. think it's a really difficult term to grasp and a lot of it i think stems from the fact that everyone wants to be wanted 
right? Of course. There's this innate thing inside of humans that you want to be wanted. You want to be part of a community. Unity mm-hmm. is incredibly crucial to um, you know most people's personal happiness, right? Yep. And so I think that is kind of where the state ideology is paired with the nation. Right. And that I think is where the form like nationalism comes into play and patriotism. And not only is that part of your identity, but it's also a tool that's used by the state to garner more power. Yes. Because they use unity and this idea of nationalism. Oh, you're an American, which is Mm -hmm. this, you know, has been cultivated to this great, almost this external religious power you know everyone is too- but you can't quite put your finger on what exactly it is yeah. what is being american i mean this is a right. country of immigrants so right what is american and colonizers yeah yeah um and so it's just this really challenging idea that i think plays heavily into the world of sport but the also the undeniable tie between politics and sports Yes. How nationalism is part of us, and believing in the state to a certain degree is part of us. Yep. Um, and when someone contradicts that idea, pushes back against something that is an incredibly comfortable thing for most people to feel, that's where people struggle to wholeheartedly get behind mm-hmm. athletes protesting. Because you can't, there's no way to just question one part of it. Like when Colin Kaepernick kneels, it's like, oh, why is he kneeling? And like, is that disrespectful to the flag? Why is the flag important to me? What does the flag really represent? It's literally just a piece of cloth. Like it just sends you into this like conspiracy level, like questioning what you're saying, like such a core value and like part of your identity. To scale it down, I feel like the easiest way is like to use sports as an analogy because like, I'm not a huge Eagles fan, but like because of where I was, my mom was born, I'm an Eagles fan. Because of where you were born, you're a Patriots fan. And like no matter what, if we were to go to a game together, the NFL would take our money. Like it doesn't matter who which team wins. And yet there's this sense of opposition, even though like we have a ton in common, we're really good friends, like we've had a lot of shared experiences. But like the idea that an institution can gain power and money by hitting people against each other and making them feel united in this like we are this and not this and you are this and therefore you're like not as good it's just like when you zoom out on it it's like so ridiculous but it's way more integral to people's reality than like we'd like to admit and that is where i think that the national anthem comes into play in a massive factor because for one moment everyone in the stands is united Mm-hmm. For that one moment, and then you know the game starts, and I'll scream at you, I'll throw my beer on yeah. you. You know what I mean? Like that's, <laughs> when, that's when there's this sense of division that is somehow labeled as acceptable, right? But for that one moment, we're all united, and anyone that challenges that, oh, they're not with us, they're not part of us, you know, right? That's where there's that sense of division that some people feel. The national anthem is only really played before sporting events. Mm-hmm. Not played before concerts. 
It's not played before panel discussions. It's not played mm-hmm. before you go to a play. You know, mm-hmm. it's this thing that is supposed to bring people together. And if that's its sole purpose, then why aren't we playing it at other events, right? Right. You know, this conversation's had a, come up a lot recently is why do we even play the national anthem before? Yeah, I was going to say, you should talk um, about this. The national anthem was born in the early 1800s as a war song. And I think that creates this interesting paradigm where it's like, okay, now sports is almost separate. And I think that's where the separation comes from too. The sport absolutely separate from those other events, partially because we make it so intense and spiritual and increase the magnitude of it by playing a battle song beforehand, you know? It, right. Why is it different? Like, why isn't it played? It's a shared activity, yeah. A shared right. experience where everyone is there for the common goal, for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, sport is viewed differently, even though in its purest form, it is entertainment. And athletes are viewed as different than other entertainers, I think, because of it. You know, that then you question, who are we playing the national anthem for? 99% of the time when it's played, it's for United States against United States. I know, that's so, so stupid. It, 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 it's a really confusing um, yeah. conversation, but it is so ingrained. And, you know, I grew up playing football my entire life, and I have a really strong connection with the national anthem. That was when mm-hmm. I would, that's when I would have the most butterflies in my stomach because it always yeah. happened right before kickoff. And it was a time when I would, you know, you'd stand there um, and you would just be to your own thoughts, you know, but to others, it you know, it means an entirely different thing. And I think that's like the perfect example of the nation state exerting power is like making us do this ridiculous ass thing where we're standing opposite each other singing the same song about the same country and like both feeling so strong but such different potentially associations with it and like the fact that it's become so normalized that nobody even acts like it's a weird thing to do is like the nation state has been successful like it has been like implemented um and i feel like once people do start to sort of question these realities it threatens like well, it threatens the white experience in America. It threatens ideas of white supremacy. But it also, these protests threaten this higher power. And like in very real ways, like the actual state. It's, it is pointing something out about our country. But that's sort of why it makes sense. Because like, oh, you know, like why are, you're protesting, you're kneeling in front of the flag, you're disrespecting America. And it's like, yeah, well, America is disrespecting me. So that's what I'm trying to say like yes you got it can i talk about naomi osaka for a little bit absolutely she's awesome okay so naomi osaka for those who don't know is ranked number one in the world yes by the women's tennis association and she is half haitian and half japanese she did have her childhood in japan and she's the first asian player to ever have this top ranking so that's cool She's a three-time Grand Slam singles champion. She is the reigning champion of the U.S. Open. She just won the U.S. Open again against Victoria Azarenka, which was awesome to watch. 
Um, she won her first two Grand Slam single titles in back-to-back tournaments, which she's the first player to do that since Jennifer Capriotti in 2001. So she's just like a real superstar. And she's only 22 also. Oh my God, yes. Very important. She's super young. And the I get so annoyed about this, but like the biggest coverage, the thing talked about the most when announcers are just like talking about random stuff about athletes is how shy she is and how soft-spoken she is and how like not flashy she is. And it's just, there is this concept or understanding of her that's built up as like this shy young girl who's like amazing at tennis, but like is very diminutive in terms of compared to someone like maybe say Serena who has like a larger presence or like you know, Rafael Nadal, who's just like a, he's like all over the media, all over the place. Um, So for the U.S. Open, which was August 31st to September 13th of this year, she wore a face mask for every game that she went to. And of course, because she won, she went to all seven matches. So she had seven face masks and she wore one for each match. And they were Brianna Taylor, Elijah McLean, Ahmaud Aubrey. George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Philando Castile. That I know of, I don't think that she made a statement ahead of time that she was going to be doing this. She just would walk onto the court with the mask and like prepare herself, warm up, you know, whatever, and then start the match. And when she won the whole thing, the US Open, they were doing like whatever, requisite interviewing her. And ESPN's Tom Rinaldi, in his like infinite wisdom, asked her, what message were you trying to send when you wore those face masks to every game? And Naomi Osaka looked him dead in the eye and said, well, what was the message that you got? She just completely flipped it on him and was like, this isn't about me. And like that, I think, completely explains like the whole thing about athletes protesting. It's not like them being like, oh, poor me. Like I have this hard life. It's like with the privilege that I have, like this is the best possible thing I can do is like call attention to these issues. And yeah, she was like, don't ask me, like ask yourself. And the fact that you asked me that is so, makes it so clear that you had no idea what I meant by that. And like, she's like a young woman and yeah, like her voice is soft and like, she does seem maybe a little shy, but like she just flamed him. And like, I thought that was so cool. Incredibly powerful. I guarantee that people around the world that were watching this event Googled those names. This is not, I mean, this was obviously because of the pandemic, but the symbolism of having her mouth covered too by that name is like, I think, especially powerful. Mm-hmm. In the Western and Southern Open, she refused to play the semifinals because of the Jacob Blake shooting. And she tweeted, As many of you are aware, I was scheduled to play my semifinals match tomorrow. However, before I am an athlete, I am a black woman. And as a black woman, I feel as though there are much more important matters at hand that need immediate attention rather than watching me play tennis. I don't expect anything drastic to happen with me not playing, but if I can get a conversation started in a majority white sport, I consider that a step in the right direction. Watching the continued genocide of black people at the hand of the police is honestly making me sick to my stomach. I'm exhausted of having a new hashtag pop up every few days, and I'm extremely tired of having this same conversation over and over again. When will it ever be enough? It's not fun 
for people to like take this on as something to discuss. It's like incredibly traumatic, I think, and people relive that every time they talk about it. Black and African-American athletes are predominantly the ones who are more outspoken and have be started a lot of these um, movements of kneeling and are incredibly vocal in, for example, Black Lives Matter. It's a privilege for you to, for someone to be able to separate, to have an escape from the social and political realities of our country. I think the biggest argument um, against this sort of like, keep our sports safe from like, all this other sad stuff that we don't want to think about right now because we just want to relax and drink a beer and watch the game, whatever. Like asking someone to not mix politics, quote, human rights with entertainment is asking a black athlete, could you just like not carry the legacy of deadly violence that's been inflicted against people who look like you um, through the whole history of our country? That's ridiculous. You can't do that. Patriotism is conceptual racism is very tangible yes so it's even weirder to assume that athletes would be more likely to separate than we would be able to like part from the idea that america is amazing absolutely it's true i think it is really difficult to do that but there's there's like active violence being perpetuated against black people in this country and we're like can you just shush and like make your basket talk about not respecting the importance of sports as a platform in America. Like I feel like the best way to revere sports is to have the athletes make you think. That's something that yeah. I've said to athletes throughout history is like, oh, like why should you you know, why are you speaking out? And I think the the great rebuttal is because I can, but also what gives you the right to tell me what to do. Right. Um if I want to use my platform to speak about certain issues, I have that right. You have a choice in opting out. Naomi Osaka, for example, like, I don't get to opt out. Like she said, I'm a black woman. And like, it just forces the audience to think about that. But yeah, just the idea of like, you should be uncomfortable with your consumption of me as a person, but you don't want to deal with like the full complexity of my identity. You just want me to be like good at my sport and like pretty and, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, athletes are often looked at as objects rather than humans. Yeah. If there is this sort of like idea that athletes don't know what they're talking about or something or like can't speak to these experiences, then like kneeling during the national anthem, wearing a shirt to warm ups, like this is the avenue that we have limited them to. And then we're like, nope, like, sorry, you can't do that. Kneeling, which is the most common form of protest in professional sports has been deemed in every other avenue when you look at kneeling, usually as a form of respect. Absolutely. If you kneel and, you know, look back in the ancient days, right? And I obviously wasn't there, so it's not like I can talk about it <laughs> to its full extent, but people <laughs> kneel in front of emperors, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or you kneel... Um, when you listen to a coach, like that's like a, like a sign of respect to your coach. Don't you also kneel if another athlete is injured on the field? Yes. If there is an injury, both sides kneel. Right, um, right. As a sign of respect. It was even dubbed a sign of respect. It was the most respectful way that Colin Kaepernick, according to a former military member, 
Yeah, who he bothered to consult. Right, which a lot of people don't know, actually. People view it as a stance against, like I said earlier, the nation and our armed forces and the people. Yeah, I know everything. The people that sacrificed their lives to fight for this country. But he consulted a member of the military to make sure that he could protest in a way that was not disrespectful to our armed forces, that was disrespectful to political officials. It was simply to bring about a a different message than would often be portrayed. In taking an issue with this, people are acknowledging that there is a power dynamic because it's not like Colin Kaepernick was like, f*** all of you. He was trying to reference a, a marginalized community that he is a part of who are being literally gunned down. Like a lot of these protests are meant to uplift the black community, like the 68 Olympics, when Tommy Smith and John Carlos did the black power symbol, like why is black empowerment so threatening to you unless you're acknowledging that you're treated as better than? So I think it just, on the surface, it definitely messes with people's ideas of their own identity. And also just like, when I turn on my TV and I have my time, I want to see what I want to see, or like, I want to see what I paid to see. It's that, but then it's also like, forces people to ask really uncomfortable questions that I think a lot of people don't want to ask themselves. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Kenny Noel for music, Dan the Ad Man for his voice work, and of course, Noah Nelson for his work on this episode. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod or email us at the All Alone Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.